So, uh, Robin Williams, I miss you, friend. What a man that shared so much joy and laughter and brought that to our world. I still remember seeing uh, the original Jumanji in theaters. It was one of the the first movies that I got to see in movie theaters. Uh, I still hear uh, Mrs. Doubtfire's voice in my head sometimes. Oh, darling, you know. And 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 of course, ah, oh, Patch Adams. I mean, I, I think that has to be one of the greatest stories told through film. The the story about about healing through laughter, and community. And the sad irony that Robin Williams was the one to play that role. I think, I think in many ways, Robin Williams is, is kind of like the archetype for us in this cultural moment that we find ourselves. That, that behind that smile, and he had such a great smile, was a deep well of sadness I say that Robin Williams is the archetype of our cultural moment because we all know this to some extent. We've all done this dance before, outward smiles and inward tears. That behind the smiles and the laughter and the dancing and the comedic notes of our nation, there, there is this deep sadness that we have. For a nation that's built on the principles of, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, man, sometimes it seems like it's just a chasing after the wind. And even here in the church, right? There's laughter and there's smiles and clapping and singing and, hi, how are you? Oh, good, great. But, but behind all of that, there, there's so many of us who are dealing with like a low-grade depression or fatigue and we've just become acclimated to it. Like, this is, this is how life is. This is just the new normal. I guess this is just how life is supposed to feel. And, you know, sometimes we think that Jesus doesn't have a whole lot to say on the subject of happiness or joy. That, that often we, we imagine Jesus like one of those uh, depictions of him from the Sistine Chapel. You know what I'm talking about? Jesus is there, and he's like this pale white figure. Never mind the fact that he was a Jew from the Middle East. He's bone thin. Never mind the fact that he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And, and above all, picture after picture, he just seems so sad. He's got this like somber demeanor to him at all times. But you know, that's, that's not really the picture of Jesus that we see in Scripture. The Old Testament prophet said that Jesus, the Christ, the, the anointed one, would be the one who would come into the world to turn our mourning into dancing, our, our sorrow into joy. And in the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament, they, they take this up and they find this and they say like, oh, Jesus, Jesus is that. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And why do they believe that? Because of how happy he was, how joyful he was. Take a look at this. This is from the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 1. It, it says this. It says, but he, talking about he, the, the father, says this to his son, Jesus, God, your throne is forever. Your kingdom scepter is a rod of justice. 
You loved righteousness and hated lawless behavior. And then check this out. This is why God, your God, has anointed you, talking about Jesus, has anointed you more than your companions with the oil of joy. (laughs) Meaning Jesus was happier than anybody else who ever lived on the world, in the earth. That, that this ancient prophecy actually is fulfilled by the people who, who saw Jesus, who walked with him, who, who witnessed that he really was the most joyful person ever. He was the happiest person alive. And, and we, don't, we don't think about that. Most of the time, we, we don't look to Jesus for advice on the subject of happiness and how to live a happy life. We look to Jesus for other stuff, like how to forgive and how to love our neighbors and sacrifice and things like that. But, but on the subject of happiness, we look to like, I, I don't know, uh, the Dalai Lama or Gandhi or mindfulness or positive thinking or, or Oprah. Uh, but today, today I, I want to take us to a story Uh, about Jesus that shows just how joyful he was and how he gives just abundant joy to those around him. And of course, it's a story that happens at a table where Jesus is eating and drinking. And that should be uh, no surprise to you because, well, we're in a message series called At the Table where we're looking at the times that Jesus showed up at the table. Uh, but also just on like a general human level, some of the happiest moments in our lives happen around a table. I mean, weddings, and birthdays, and anniversaries. Think of some of the happiest moments in your life. I, I bet in some of them there was a, a table involved somewhere. And so in this story, it's one of those joyful moments of everyday life. It's, it's a wedding that Jesus shows up at, but something goes wrong. And some of you might already know what story I'm referring to. Uh, but Jesus shows up and he actually restores the joy of the celebration and actually increases the joy of the celebration. So uh, here it is. This is John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, way, way north of Jerusalem. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration, which means that John, who's writing this account, this is John's gospel, was a disciple of Jesus. He was there with them at this wedding party. And, and you may know uh, that wedding celebrations at this time, uh, they were very extravagant. They went on for days and days and days, and they were also very expensive events, which sets up what's about to happen next, and which is why what's about to happen next is such a catastrophe. But it would also be a catastrophe. It happened at your wedding or your child's wedding. Now, just a sidebar here before we get too deep into this story. I think we just need to take at face value the fact that Jesus, God in a bod, was invited to a party and he went and he had a really good time. Jesus, Jesus loved to party. And, and I think, you know, our, our religion should never be so holy that we cannot be happy in it. 
That sometimes we, we seem to get so stuck and so stiff and so stale and we forget the fact that Jesus got invited to a party and he went and he had a great time. And actually, he made the party a whole lot better. The fact that, that God loves to show up in everyday life and hear people laughing, see people dancing. I, I think that, that for us as followers of Jesus, we should take a cue from that. That we should be the ones who love to party. We should be the ones who love to go to the feast and the banquets. And we have a great reason to. Because we've been liberated from the fear of death. We, we've been set free. We know God's love for us. We ought to be the ones who are toasting to the world. Hey, good news. God loves you. Cheers. Woo! Anyways. Okay, you're not there yet. Anyways. <laughs> they're, they're at a wedding. They're having a good time. Um, but weddings, weddings are just accidents that are waiting to happen. Um, I don't mean like the years of marriage that are to come. Um, I mean the day itself, right? I, I've done a lot of weddings and always, inevitably, something is going to go wrong on the wedding day. So something goes wrong here. Verse, uh, verse 3. It says, when the wine ran out, uh-oh, Jesus' mother said to him, they don't have any wine. Uh-oh. So imagine, imagine that happening at your wedding. Uh, you're getting ready to, to toast, but you don't have any champagne to do it. Or, or imagine that you're going to cut the cake and there's no cake left to be cut. Uh, or maybe it's not a wedding. Imagine, imagine you're at Thanksgiving dinner um, and the turkey isn't thawed. It's actually happened one time. This is just an excuse to tell, me this, tell you this story. Uh, we went to my aunt's house for Thanksgiving dinner. And uh, there's a frozen bird in the sink and my aunt with a hairdryer trying to defrost it like 30 minutes before the meal was supposed to start, you know? We, we all have that one person in the family, okay, right? Anyways, um, so uh, what's going on here, though, is actually a bigger problem than that they just ran out of wine. So just some cultural background to this. Uh, at this time... Uh, the groom's family was responsible for providing everything for the wedding celebration that went on for days and days and days. It was a very kind of extravagant, expensive thing. Um, that was just proper etiquette. But more than proper etiquette, uh, the groom's family was uh, legally expected to provide a really great party because the wedding feast was in a way kind of a payment for the bride. Um, it was a way to kind of pay the, the bride's family, sort of a dowry system. And anyways, that's just, there. we won't go into all that today. Uh, but just to say that there was this legal obligation to throw a good party. And so what a way to start off with your new family, right? Like, hey, welcome to the family, but the party stunk. So here's a subpoena. We'll see you in court. And so this family has now just run out of wine. Maybe they're a poor family and they couldn't afford enough wine for the whole celebration. We, we don't know. Uh, but they're there and, and they're kind of in, in a troubled place. They don't know what to do. They know that a lawsuit might be coming their way. And so uh, Jesus' mom says, hey, they ran out of wine. Next verse. Uh, Jesus replied to his mother, woman which is actually a term of endearment. It's like, ma'am, he says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My time hasn't come yet. Or, or as I imagine the tone of this, Jesus being like, 
Mom, I came to save the world, not weddings, okay? This isn't my deal, right? What does this have to do with me? Uh, And Jesus might be a little hesitant because maybe he doesn't want to give, you know, already tipsy people even more wine and turn it into a drunk party. Uh, Maybe he doesn't want to reveal his power in this way that people will see him and think that he's like this cosmic sugar daddy that just dispenses free wine wherever he goes. Um, But Jesus... Jesus does have this idea of how he wants to reveal himself to the world and and show the world who he is and what he is capable of doing. And making more wine at a wedding, it it just isn't the way that he wants to do it. And then, I love this, because this is what changes his mind. Uh, Verse verse 5. So Jesus says, my time hasn't come yet. His mother, Mary, told the servants, do whatever he tells you to do, which just sounds like to me Mary saying, Jesus, just be a good boy and do what mama says. Okay, love you. And then, walk, and then she just walks away because she can do that, right? She's, she's mama. Even though this is God's only begotten son, you know, God in a bod, Mary can still say, just be a good boy, sweetheart. Okay, thank you. And then she just walks away. I, I love it. It goes on, verse 6. It says, Nearby were six stone water jars used for the Jewish cleansing ritual, each able to hold about 20 or 30 gallons. Now, this is where the story gets really, really interesting. Um, And this is why I think John starts off his story of Jesus's ministry in this way, with a wedding party. That John doesn't start off his story of Jesus with him, you know, healing the sick or walking on water or raising the dead, uh, but with Jesus saving a party. But Jesus wasn't just saving a party to save the family from embarrassment or, or the groom's family from a lawsuit. John specifically mentions that there are these six stone jars that are used for the purification ritual in the Jewish uh, religion. They were used for ritual cleansing because if you were a good religious Jew at this time, uh, you had to be cleansed before you did certain things, after you did certain things. And in order to be ritually clean, you had to use these stone jars, wash your hands, all of that stuff, so that you could go worship God in the temple, go to worship in your local synagogue. So these stone jars are symbols of the ancient Jewish sacrificial system, because you had to present yourself as clean before God, before you could come to God. You had to cleanse yourself before you came and appeared before God. But here's the twist now. The twist is that now God is already here. (laughs) The stone jars are empty, and God, Jesus, is already here on the scene at the party. Jesus notices that these stone jars are empty. So, verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And I think that what John and Jesus are trying to tell us here is that this old religious system, this old ritual system of trying to cleanse ourselves in order to be good enough to present ourselves before God, it's empty. Those stone jars, they're they're empty. That old way of relating to God, it it just leaves us 
empty, and now Jesus was going to turn it all around. Jesus says, fill these to the brim. Goes on, verse 8. Then he told them, now draw some from them and take it to the head waiter. And they did. The head waiter tasted the water that had become wine. We're not even told how Jesus did the miracle, just that it had happened. It had become wine. And he, the head waiter, didn't know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. So this is everyone's uh, favorite miracle, Jesus turning water into wine, uh, because, you know, you've probably all been at that wedding uh, or that uh, dinner banquet before, and you just wish that that glass of water would be turned into wine. Um, but this isn't just like a couple glasses of wine. Uh, this wasn't just like enough for a toast. And, and even though probably like a few six-packs would have sufficed, uh, Jesus actually turns all of these stone jars fills them up with water, and then turns them into wine. That's something like 120 to 180 gallons of wine. Now, why that's so important? It's not just because it's wine, but what wine actually is symbolized for the Jewish people. Wine was a symbol of joy. Maybe it still carries that same kind of symbolic weight in our culture today. Uh, but wine actually flowing in abundance was a symbol that God was going to do something new. It, it was a signal for the people that when there was an abundance of wine, God was pouring out blessing and favor, that there was going to be joy restored to the world. So for example, take the Old Testament prophet Amos. He said this about uh, God's hope of restoration. Amos says this in Amos chapter 9. Uh, God says this, says, on that day, I, God, will raise up the meeting tent of David that has fallen, there's been some destruction, and repair its broken places. I will raise up its ruins, and I will rebuild it like a long time ago, so that they may possess what is left of Edom, as well as all the nations who are, calling, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who will do this. And listen to this. The days are surely coming, says the Lord. When the one who plows will overtake the one who gathers, when the one who crushes grapes will overtake the one who sows seed. It says, days are coming when the mountains will drip wine and the hills will flow with it. You see, when Jesus turned the water into wine, he, he wasn't just doing a neat magic trick. He, he wasn't just doing a random act of kindness. He was inaugurating the hopes of God for the world, that, that joy would now flow in abundance out into the world. And that emptiness, that empty, stale uh, religious way of relating to God, that would be gone away with, and there would be a new way to relate with God, a way that would bring joy to the world. Jesus says, fill them to the brim, and I will do something amazing. That no longer do we have to try to clean ourselves up before we come to God. No longer do we have to try to appear better than we really are before we come to God. Jesus says, fill them up. I will provide the joy. Jesus is already at the party. He's already here with us. We don't have to clean ourselves up first. It means to us that God accepts us, invites us just to, 
as we are. God, God loves people with dirty hands. God has come for the people who are burned out on religion, the people who feel like their jar is, is half empty already, or maybe it's running low. The people who feel like they're just kind of stuck. God has come to bring joy to this world. And Jesus, this Jesus, as we'll later see in the story, he talks about himself as, as the true vine. He, he talks about, about his blood as, as the wine that has been poured out as a sacrifice for many. You see, what, what happens here is, is that this was, this was a sign that Jesus was using to point beyond something just miraculous. It was to point to himself as a miraculous person. But not everyone knows this yet. So the story goes on, it continues. It says, The head waiter called the groom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and they bring out the second-rate wine only when the guests are drinking freely because everybody's good and drunk and their senses are dull, so they don't, they don't really care. That's just a party tip for you. Um, you... You, though, have kept the good wine until now. You've, you've saved the best for last. But what he doesn't know and what nobody else in the party knows is that so has God. God has saved the best for last. And this sets the stage for the new thing that God was going to do in the world. A new way for God to relate to us, to, to fill us up of our emptiness and to bring joy to us. That those empty jars that would be full of just stale water for purification rituals, they're the ones that set the stage for what Jesus was about to do and bring joy into our lives. And it's the good stuff. It, it's the good stuff. It, it's not like that two-buck chuck kind of stuff, right? This is, you know, this is the good stuff. It, it's the stuff that has some dust on the bottom of it, okay? That, that Jesus is like the sommelier of the kingdom of heaven. It's the good stuff. I love it. The story goes on, verse 11. It says, This was the first miraculous sign that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, just a couple kind of key words from this last line. Um, uh, this was more than just a miracle. As John writes, this was a miraculous sign. Now, a sign, as we all know, a sign is something that, that points to something, gives direction for something, identifies something. And that something that John tells us is the glory of Jesus. That word glory, it means something like, like weight, like the presence of something, this kind of heaviness of something in a good way, the, the full revelation of something, this, this kind of shocking awareness or revelation. Or another way that might help you just kind of remember this, um, in, in Southern slang, uh, when someone is naked right? Um, you say, uh, there they were in all of their glory, right? Meaning that they were fully revealed. You, you saw it all, which is kind of a weird way to think about this. But what John is saying is, 
Jesus was fully revealed about who he was. And who was he? He was the one that saved the party. (laughs) Who was he? He was the one that brought joy to the party. He's the one that brought joy in abundance. That's that's who Jesus is. That's the first thing that John tells us about who Jesus is. And is it any wonder? Is it any wonder that one of Jesus' core teachings was about joy? Later on, he'll go from here and he'll go and teach his disciples and he'll say, you know, I've told you these things. I've taught you these things so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete, joyful to the brim. Jesus talks about himself as as the good shepherd, the the one who has lost a sheep that's wandered away. He goes, he finds it, picks it up, puts it on his shoulders, takes it back, and goes back rejoicing that he has found the sheep. Jesus says he's like the woman who has lost a coin, and then once she finds it, she throws a block party. Jesus says that he's like the father who has this prodigal son who's gone off, but once he sees the son coming back home, runs towards him, open arms, hugging in full embrace, and has a homecoming feast. Joy, an abundant joy. And I think Jesus taught us something unique about joy, too. The joy that Jesus taught us about, it wasn't just like extreme happiness or or it wasn't just momentary or here for a season and then gone. That that for for Jesus, joy was was something deeper. It was something that that I believe, you know, it it took this sense of, of celebration, of course, but also this honesty and vulnerability And I think if you were to take, you know, vulnerability or honesty plus celebration, you put those things together, then you get joy. We see that here in in this little story in a silly way, right? Oh, we've run run out of wine. There's honesty. And Mary says, hey, Jesus, we could really use you to do one of your little trick things, okay? Uh, There's vulnerability, there's honesty, and then celebration, and there's joy. That it's not just surface happiness, wearing a smile over a sea of pain. No, Jesus Jesus taught us how to be vulnerable. He, He taught us how to be honest. He taught us how to open ourselves up and then find acceptance and love in the life of God, in the face of being vulnerable. And I think that was Jesus's table a table as a place where you could be open, you could be honest, without fear of shame or rejection, but you would find celebration over you. If you add those things together, vulnerability and celebration, then you get joy. But, but the problem is that if you have vulnerability without celebration, without acceptance, then that leads to shame. Or, If you have celebration without vulnerability or honesty, well, then you're left with just kind of that shallow surface happiness, like a Robin Williams movie that's hiding a sea of pain beneath it. But what Jesus desires for us is for us to be open and honest, vulnerable with him and with one another, and then then the promise to celebrate us 
to celebrate even in the face of that openness and that honesty, that vulnerability, not to bring shame, not to bring rejection. That Jesus takes all of those feelings of, of emptiness that we might have and then fills us up with joy. Not momentary happiness, not just relief. But in those moments where we're laid open and raw before him, honest about our emptiness, Jesus promises to come and to fill us up. And I think, isn't that, isn't that also what the church is called to do? That we're called to be an extension of Jesus's table. We're called to keep inviting people, adding people to the guest list, to invite them to the table of joy that Jesus has set and to bring overflowing joy into the world. And so I just, I just want to say to you that Jesus has invited you to his table. And it's not a table of shame. It's not a table of rejection. It's a table of joy. That there has been a place that has been set for you already. And in that place, you'll find transformation. In that place, you'll find joy, that he will take your mourning and turn it into dancing, your sorrow into joy, your emptiness and fill it to the brim. A celebration has been set for you. But the thing is, the thing is that you got to come to the table. You got to be open. You got to be honest. There's a party already set for you. Jesus is ready but will you accept the invitation to come and sit with him? Let's pray. So God, we thank you. We thank you that you are the God that invites. You're the God that calls. You're the God of joy and hope in the world. Lord, for one, just help us to see that. Help us to see today your creation dancing in celebration of you. But God, also help us to know that in our hearts, that you invited us, you created us to delight in you. And Lord, we know that there's a whole lot of other stuff that has dimmed our delight, that has downplayed our praise, that has troubled us. God, you know all of that. But Lord, we pray that you would help us to have the courage to, to come to your table, to be open about that, about our disappointments and our hurts, our hang-ups, our emptiness, and that God, you would fill us up. Lord, do what only you can do. Restore our joy at a deep, deep level in our soul. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.